They Shall Expel Demons by Derek Prince Chapter 7 Challenged in My Own Pulpit My congregation were good Pentecostals, and I loved them. They sometimes testified, as Pentecostals are trained to do, of the peace and joy they enjoyed as Christians. I did not doubt their sincerity, but I also knew that at times their claims to peace and joy were a religious facade. Behind it were unrelieved tensions and pressures, which they did their best to suppress or conceal, but which they never really overcame. I began to preach about deliverance in a roundabout way. I suggested that perhaps some personal problems that were never fully resolved might be due to demonic activity, but my hints had little effect. My people sat back with indulgent smiles. Our pastor's got a bee in his bonnet, they seem to be saying, but he'll get over it. Left to myself, I do not know how I would have resolved this issue, but I was not left to myself. On Sunday morning, about a month after we ministered to Esther and Rose Henderson, both God and Satan intervened unexpectedly and shattered the superficial calm. That morning I had chosen as my text part of Isaiah chapter 59 verse 19. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Although I was not aware of it at the time, I discovered later that one of my members had been recording the service on a reel-to-reel recorder. Listening to the tape later, I was able to evaluate objectively the content of my message as well as the events that followed. After I had been speaking for about 15 minutes, the Holy Spirit took control of me and I started saying things that I had not planned to say. Even the pitch of my voice changed. I became unusually bold. The theme of my message was, no matter what the devil does, God always has the last word. God began to bring examples to my mind. Egypt had their magicians, I said, uh, 
but God had his Moses. Baal had his prophets, but God had his Elijah. Then the thought came to me that when God wanted to show Abraham what his descendants would be like, he took him out on a dark night, showed him the stars of heaven, and said, So shall thy seed be. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. We are the seed of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ, I said, and we're like stars. When all the other lights are shining, you don't see the stars. But when every other light has gone out, then the stars shine brighter than ever. Correction. Shine brighter than they had ever shone before. That's how it is going to be at the close of this age. When every other light has gone out, we who are the seed of Abraham, through faith in Jesus Christ, are going to shine like the stars. When I spoke these words, a young woman seated alone on the front pew let out a prolonged blood-curdling shriek threw her arms into the air, and slumped to the floor in a very unladylike posture. She lay there writhing and moaning right in front of my pulpit. This was Satan's challenge to my declaration that no matter what the devil does, God has the last word a demonic manifestation directly in front of my pulpit. I had to either prove what I was preaching or stop preaching it. At that moment, I decided I would not back down before Satan. On the other hand, I felt I needed some support. So I called my wife Lydia forward. I knew I could count on her. Feeling I needed more reinforcement, I scanned the faces of my good Pentecostal church members. They were all in a state of shock. Then at the back, I saw our Presbyterian friends, the Faulkners, and called them forward. The four of us gathered around the woman, whom I did not immediately recognize, as she lay writhing and moaning on the floor. Sherry Faulkner did not wait for a word from me. She was like a terrier after a rat. You spirit that is in this woman, she said, what is your name? From the young woman's voice came a harsh, gruff, masculine voice that said, My name is 
but it would go no further. Again, Sherry asked her question, and the demon said, My name is... and stopped. Each time she asked, she got the same response. So I stepped in and addressed the demon with the same formula I had used with Esther. As follows. You spirit that's in this woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm speaking to you and not to the woman. What is your name? The demon responded again. My name is... Each time I repeated the question, the response was the same. I find... Correction. I found myself in the same intense person-to-person conflict I had experienced while ministering to Esther. But this time I had my congregation as an attentive audience. I recalled that the disciples had reported to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. So I said to the demon, In the name of Jesus, you are subject to me. What is your name? Still the same answer. My name is, and no more. I saw that I had to beat the demon down with scripture and the name of Jesus and began to do so. Suddenly the demon gave in. It shouted loudly, My name is Lies. Everyone in the congregation went up into the air and came down on their seats with a bump. I did a quick mental check with scripture. In 1 Kings 22, I recalled there was a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets of Ahab. So the reply I had received was scriptural. And I got the impression somehow that this woman had been listening to lies rather than telling them. I said to the demon, You lying spirit, come out of this woman. The demon defied me. It refused to come out. But by this time, I was confident that if I persisted in using the name of Jesus, it would have to obey me. Finally, after ten minutes, the demon came out with a loud, sustained roar like an express train going past. No human lungs 
could have sustained the volume of sound for so long. As the demon came out, the woman's tongue protruded out of her mouth, bluish in color and twisting like a snake. Then, as the uproar subsided, she collapsed on the floor like an empty sack. Standing there at the front of the sanctuary, I thanked the Lord quietly for my previous experience with demons. I thanked the Lord in privacy in my own home. More to follow. It was evident that one demon had gone out of this young woman, but the pressure within me warned me that there were others still to be dealt with. Without this warning, I could easily have said, Praise the Lord, our sister has been delivered and done no more. Sooner or later, however, her conduct would have revealed that she was not fully free, and the ministry of deliverance would have been discredited. At the same time, I felt it would not be appropriate to continue the public ministry in the Sunday morning worship service. So I said to John Faulkner and the church treasurer who was standing nearby, if you will take this lady into my office, I'll continue with my sermon. The two of them, along with Lydia, marched her off into my office while I returned to the pulpit. I found myself preaching to round eyes and open mouths. The morning's demonstration had convinced them of the reality of demons far more effectively than any certain correction, any sermon. After a little while, I heard dull thuds coming from the direction of my office. Then Lydia put her head around the corner. You better come in here quickly, she said. I knew she was not given to panic, so I said to the people, I'll close my sermon now, and you can either stay in the church and pray or go home. Whatever you feel like. Just as I left the platform, a member of the congregation, a godly woman who was the mother of the church pianist, walked up to me and said, Mr. Prince, Was that our daughter? I stopped in surprise. Sharon, our pianist, always sat in the front row. 
she was a Pentecostal, saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit since childhood. Her father was a Pentecostal pastor, her husband a Pentecostal Bible student, and her brother-in-law a Pentecostal minister. She was a quiet young woman whose ministry was to play the piano, not in the least like the woman on the floor. I did not know how to answer her. Finally, I said, I think it must have been Sharon. There was no one else on that pew. May I come with you to the office? By all means, I said. Sharon's husband and father joined us, and we made our way together to the office. It was a scene such as I had never imagined. John Faulkner and the church treasurer each held one of Sharon's arms, but whenever she could get a hand free, she was tearing off her clothes. This is where pe- treat correction. This is where preachers get into trouble. I thought to myself. Aloud, I said to Sharon's husband and parents, "If you like, if you'd like to take Sharon to a psychiatrist, that's perfectly all right with me. I will do nothing more unless you all assure me you want to continue." me to handle this case. We'd like you to handle it, they all replied. John Faulkner asked to be excused and left, followed by the treasurer, as Sharon's husband and father took charge of holding her. As she came under their authority, The manifestations subsided. Then Sharon's mother drew me aside and began to tell me that she had been seeking an appointment for me to counsel with Sharon and her husband. This mother, a trained nurse, used discreet professional language to describe what was happening between the young couple. In that decade, Christians did not use the term oral sex, but I understood that was what she wanted to communicate. I recalled the strange contortions of Sharon's tongue as the lying spirit came out of her. Was that perhaps a manifestation of the demon's activity? As I began to talk to the family, another element came to light. Sharon had developed a strange infatuation with her brother-in-law, her husband's brother. 
he was also a minister. The two of them were exchanging letters that seemed harmless, yet could have sexual overtones. Sharon actually had one such letter addressed to her brother-in-law in her purse at that moment. That is a sinful relationship, I said immediately, and unless you repent and give it up, I cannot pray for you. You cannot expect Jesus to deliver you if you continue in this sin. But if you are willing to renounce it, then give me the letter that's in your purse, and I'll tear it up in front of you. It took ten minutes to convince Sharon. Finally, she handed me the letter and tore it up and dropped it into the wastebasket. As I put my hand on Sharon to pray for her, she slumped to the floor in a sitting posture, and I slipped down beside her. I felt the Lord showing me that there was only one position in which Sharon could receive deliverance with her body pressed forward and her head between her legs. It was as if the Lord himself was gently directing my movements. I put my hand on the small of Sharon's back and pressed her body forward. Then I began to command the demons to come out. For the next hour or more, they came out one by one, naming themselves as they did. Nearly all the names had a sexual connotation. One named itself as flirtation, and another as petting. Some of the names were obscene. Surprisingly, my hand on Sharon's back served as some kind of electronic instrument. As each demon came out, I felt a gentle impact against the palm of my hand as if it were registering its departure. When it seemed that the last demon had gone, Sharon collapsed limply on her back on the floor and lay there for about ten minutes. Then she raised her arms, correction, she raised her arms in the air and began to praise God for her deliverance. As far as I could perceive, Sharon was fully delivered. Yet the final outcome was sad. Sharon never came back to our church. She was too ashamed to be seen by the people who had witnessed her contact that Sunday morning. To me, that seemed an indictment of our church. 
were we so respectable that people who were really in trouble would not come to us? This led me to search my own soul. What was I pastoring? A middle-aged social club that met on Sunday mornings? Or a place where people with real needs could come for help? The decision I made determined my future. I could not, in good conscience, give the rest of my life to pastoring a middle-class social club. I decided I must devote the abilities God had given me to helping the people who most needed my help, even if it meant departing from accepted norms of religious behavior. But I had no idea what direction this decision would take me. The splash and the ripples. The events of that Sunday morning were like a rock tossed into the middle of a pond. First, there was a large splash, but when ripples moved out until they reached the margin of the pond, then the splash took place when the demon cast Sharon to the floor in front of my pulpit. Within the next week, Lydia and I began to feel the effect of the ripples. People came to us from everywhere, most of whom we had never seen before. They came mostly to our home, not to the church. I have no idea how they found us, but week after week, we counseled and prayed with people in our home for deliverance from demons. We seldom got to bed before two or three in the morning. After a while, my physical strength began to break down. I learned a serious lesson. If I do not care for my own physical and spiritual condition, I will not be in a state to help others get delivered. In fact, I might need help myself. I realize that a person who is worn down physically or spiritually is vulnerable to the demon attack. I soon discovered, too, that proper instruction out of Scripture is essentially for effective deliverance. I will provide such instruction in chapters 21 and 22. Before praying with people, I had to give them a sound biblical basis for what I was going to do. In this way, I built up faith in them to appropriate 
what Jesus had provided for them through his sacrificial death. Then through our mutual faith, victory would be assured. All this demanded many long hours. I realized I was in danger of neglecting my own pastoral duties. Was the time coming for me to resign my pastorate? Meanwhile, God was leading me step by step from one new situation to another. Each successive situation revealed new aspects of the ministry, aspects I had to come to grips with. Then he led me on to the next situation, but only after I graduated from the previous one. Evaluating all that had been happening, I realized God was not using the classroom method of the theological seminary to instruct me in the ministry of deliverance. He had me enrolled in a less prestigious school, the School of Experience. This is the end of the chapter.